Hello and welcome to Brain Stories. I'm Kazal Barry and I'm here with my co-host Selina Ray. On Brain Stories, we aim to provide a behind-the-scenes profile of the latest and greatest work in neuroscience, highlighting the stories and the scientists who are making this field tick. We don't just ask about the science, we ask about the scientists and how they got to where they are today and where they think their field is going in the future. Today we're delighted to be joined by Professor Nick Fox. Nick is a Professor of Clinical Neurology and he's the Director of the Dementia Research Centre at UCL. And Professor Fox's research interests are focused on the early detection, differential diagnosis and the monitoring of progression in cognitive disorders and neurodegenerative dementias. Nick, welcome. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for asking me. So I feel like this was um, the episode that I've been looking forward to recording because it's the first one we've done that will really have a disease focus. Um, And as you know, I'm slightly biased. This is an area that I'm very interested in myself. But I wonder if we could start off by hearing from you in your own words what your research is focused on and what your areas of interest are. Well, my research is quite clinically focused. Um... So I've been very interested in how we uh, detect the earliest changes of diseases like Alzheimer's disease, how we track progression. And that's not just for its own value uh, clinically or for helping families with prognosis, but also so that we can accelerate the search for therapies, improve clinical trials. If we can track changes that are not just uh, clinical, but are, for example, changes on brain imaging, how the brain changes, and then there's an opportunity to see whether um, the disease can be slowed. So that's been the interest, and and an element of my research has been on this uh, amazing group of of incredibly committed patients who've got familial dementias. So how common is that, just for the listeners who might not know as much about dementia, does it often kind of run in families? That's a great question because nearly everybody now uh, with ageing populations, nearly everybody will have somebody in their family and that causes a great deal of anxiety. Uh, um, So I'm not really talking about those sort of families where great aunt so-and-so had Alzheimer's disease in her 90s. I'm talking about families where there is truly autosomal dominant inheritance and what I mean by that is that the gene is passed on and is dominant so if you just get one copy of the gene you will develop the disease and typically the disease is incredibly early so you can get Alzheimer's disease at age 30 or 40 or 50 so decades earlier than the Alzheimer's disease that we're normally expecting people to develop in their later years. It's quite remarkable that people we don't typically think of people developing alzheimer's disease in their 30s um and i think there's still kind of a misconception i would say in kind of generally that it's a disease of older people um and perhaps an inevitable part of aging and is that something that you still feel persists or do you think that the understanding of alzheimer's disease outside of the scientific community is shifting a little bit I think it is shifting. I think there are still lots of awful myths out there. And um, Alzheimer's disease disease is used interchangeably with dementia. And Alzheimer's disease is just one 
of many conditions, many diseases that can cause dementia. I mean, you see this even in, in actually in, in pretty reputable media that that mistake is made. I think the idea that uh, it's just an inevitable part of aging I think does still persist. I think that's changing a bit. I think there's more of an understanding that these are truly diseases and that, uh, that while they are more common with aging, they're not caused by aging. And, and of course, those rare uh, autosomal dominant young onset cases, they are the minority because the majority of diseases like Alzheimer's disease does affect people in their 70s and their 80s and and, 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 and later. So there are only a few hundred families, perhaps yes, perhaps several hundred, maybe less than a thousand families with familial Alzheimer's disease in the UK. So that has to be set against an estimated 800,000 people with dementia of all sorts and of all ages, but mainly in later years. And um, I'm far from an expert on um, Alzheimer's, but I'm curious what you sort of think the future of sort of addressing Alzheimer's is, is it, uh, well, or dementia in general, is it about lifestyle change? Is it, is it exactly what you were saying here? It's, it's not a sort of genetically pre-programmed disease, or at least as far as we can tell. Um, so is it addressing people's lifestyles in their earlier life, or is it management, or is it just sort of straight up sort of medical treatment, or is it a combination of all these? Uh, well, it's, it's, it's a combination. I think, I think there are things that we can all do that reduce our risk of dementia. And some of that we need to do at quite an early stage, in, in middle years. Some of it, of course, is stuff that we all should be doing anyway for other reasons, you know. Smoking's not good for your brain. High blood pressure's not good for your brain. Poorly controlled diabetes is not good for your brain. She's not good for your brain to, to go uh, and have a few rounds with Muhammad Ali. That's not good. So, so trauma and some of those vascular risk factors, they're just not good things to do. Uh, though, uh, you know, people obviously persist. But we are reducing, to some extent, the burden of, of that disease with better public health and better control of people's blood pressure. That's shown a worldwide reduction in age-specific incidence. But it's only a part of, the, of the, um, the, the, that combination of genetic, environmental, and things we don't know that cause this, these diseases. And diseases like Alzheimer's disease, I do not think, will be simply prevented by lifestyle changes. That, that makes a, a marginal difference. It's an important difference, and we should all be sensible about those things. But that's only chipping away at the edges. I mean, what we really need to do is have effective therapies. And diseases like Alzheimer's disease that have been thought to be incurable are now curable or at least have got ways of managing them well. A number of the cancers, uh, HIV AIDS, we've got real transformation in our therapies. I think a really interesting component to diseases like Alzheimer's disease is it may be that we have to intervene much earlier. And if our research and many others have, have contributed to the idea that, and the recognition that Alzheimer's disease has changes in the brain 20 or more years before you get symptoms. 
And so we will need therapies that work at that stage and we'll need ways to identify people at those stages. But that may be our greatest chance of, of really effective therapy. And the fam- rare familial forms of Alzheimer's that you've spoken about have really been instrumental into the progress that we've made in, in kind of those arenas. Can you tell us a little bit more about what we have learned from familial Alzheimer's that has informed our knowledge of Alzheimer's as a whole? Yeah, they've absolutely been instrumental. But, but, but before I, I tell you about the science, I think I need to mention uh, a bit about these families on a, on a more personal level. Um, I, I started doing my research thinking I might do a, a clinical PhD and, uh, do th- and then go back into clinical neurology, finish my training straight off. And I, my research project was about familial Alzheimer's disease. And these families are amazing. They are incredibly brave, they're incredibly generous, and they have uh, an awful prospect ahead of them, knowing that your, I don't know, that your mum had Alzheimer's disease at 40 and often having lived with somebody as a child, I mean, the stories are dreadful of children who cover up for parents and don't admit that they haven't done their homework because actually their mum's lost their school books. And then people who have uh, the 50-50 chance hanging over them because autosomal dominant, everybody, you know, any, any child of somebody with familial Alzheimer's disease has a 50% risk. And people then making individual decisions about whether or not to get genetic testing, whether or not they want to have children themselves, what all that means. They're amazing families, and if ever you wanted anything to motivate you, you meet those families. And, and they have given so much. We, you know, it, it's, it's, it's no exaggeration to say we've understood about the pathogenesis of Alzheimer's disease. We've developed the hypotheses for its etiology from these rare genetic forms and now we are not only getting an insight into the pre-symptomatic elements because we can follow people at risk and they generously contribute to research but also those families are taking part in clinical trials which seek to slow the disease and are they i don't know whether this is sort of controversial view or not but is it is it possible that alzheimer's sort of captures actually a a sort of a broader spectrum of maybe sort of similar but slightly different pathways to the same outcome. Is, is, is there any chance that these sort of familial uh, families have something, have sort of a different pathway or differences that might mean they, they're not as good a model as we think they are? Or is that sort of a, a settled question? Oh, no, it's far from settled. Uh, um, and, you know, there, there is a a school of thought that says we shouldn't be referring to Alzheimer's disease, but we should be referring to Alzheimer's diseases because, of course, we have different phenotypic expressions with Alzheimer's disease. Not just the somebody can get it at 50 and somebody else can get it at 80, but how people's Alzheimer's disease, defined by a pathology in the brain, manifests them in them cognitively, behaviorally, in their their functional impairments differs from person to person. But you're, you're absolutely right. One of the starkest differences is those people 
where there is an autosomal dominant inheritance and they get it at 30 or 40. But the, the, the similarities, I think, outweigh the differences at this stage. Yes, maybe we will know more about how these there are multiple different pathways and we certainly have a have a bit of a sense that some of the key proteins are involve a balance between overproduction and and a failure of clearance and it may well be that these young onset genetic cases are predominantly an overproduction of a pathogenic protein and very late onset may be overwhelming a failure of clearance but you can't have one without the other so I think it's, I mean, it's amazing how much these individuals have chosen to kind of show a commitment to research and really support us. I mean, as you know, Nick, I've had the pleasure of kind of meeting several people who participate in research and indeed they've contributed to my own research. And one of the things that I always quote when I give give talks is this idea of we're making progress because within several generations we've gone from being able to say we're really sorry we know this is in your family but we don't know what the cause is to well we know that this is the gene that is causing your disease but we can't do anything about it to actually we can put you into this clinical trial if you you're wishing to participate so what's the current status do we have reason to be optimistic about treatments for alzheimer's it's obviously been all over the news recently with the approval of aducanumab, um, but that is one of just many kind of therapies that is in, in the experimental pipeline. Um, how do you feel looking forward? Is it a time of optimism? I think it is, and I, I have to say that with some reticence because I've been telling families that we're making masses of progress and it'll be a few years and there are promising therapies in the pipeline. And while that was true, in the two decades I've been saying that, we haven't come up with a, an effective therapy, really. I think, and at risk of sounding like I'm saying the same thing again, I think we really do know a lot more and we do have promising therapies. One of the things about the last few years of, of therapeutic trials, while we haven't produced a, a, a really significant we certainly haven't found a cure, and uh, clinical benefit has been really hard to achieve. The slowing of cognitive decline has been honestly marginal, even for those therapies which seem to show show benefit, but be it symptomatic or, or disease modifying. But we are now shifting pretty clearly pathologies, and we've got mechanisms to alter the pathology in the brain. And that is a step forward. We are, with these new therapies, we are clearing amyloid from the brain. Now, what does that mean in terms of translating into downstream effects and in terms of neuronal uh, damage and neuronal death and then cognitive impairment? We don't know. The jury's out. But we are shifting pathology and we are understanding those pathologies better and ways in which we can interfere with a poorly understood process, but at least partly understood. That's really, I'm, I find it really interesting what you say about there being sort of relatively little progress sort of for two decades. Where's the sort of, where's the failure? Maybe failure is a strong word to say, but is it 
is it our understanding? Is it the theory that isn't just been borne out, or is it is the theory solid and we just can't find uh, therapeutic drugs that have the effect we want? Like, where's the? I'm curious. Where's the sort of where's the break in that chain? No, it's a great it's a great question. So if we think about people often say it's two decades, it's twenty years since the last therapy for Alzheimer's disease was was licensed. I think it, it, that that kind of misses a point because the first therapies were essentially recognizing that there were neurotransmitter deficits in the Alzheimer brain. I mean, I don't want to simplify it, and it was a great step forward, but, but you, can, you can find whether or not neurotransmitters are reduced in an Alzheimer brain compared to a normal brain with techniques that were understood 20, 30 years ago. And then you can think we've got lots of diseases where we can boost uh, neurotransmitters in the brain, we do that all the time, you know, um, treatments for, for depression, treatments for Parkinson's disease. So those were the first therapies. But it's a completely different challenge to interfere with a pathological cascade rather than just boost a neurotransmitter. And this isn't a, 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 a sort of plea bargain type of, uh, of statement about, you know, please forgive us because it's a difficult disease. But it is, has been a difficult disease, but it's also lagged hugely behind uh, cancer and uh, other major diseases in terms of it's the investment in research. Now that's catching up and that's also a cause for optimism. And your research, Nick, is spanning kind of quite a wide range of approaches to understanding Alzheimer's. Master of none. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) (laughs) Would I? Absolutely not. Um, No, I actually think you're in probably a better position than anyone else we could interview to maybe speak to where's the most excitement at the moment? Because you've talked about the need for a lot of different areas to progress in parallel for us to get to where we need to be. So trials are no good unless we know who to give them to. We won't know who to give the drugs to unless we can diagnose accurately and as early as possible. What's happening in in kind of your world at the minute that you think, yeah, this is the, the most exciting thing? So I think we made phenomenal progress in an area where we were way behind in terms of biomarkers and understanding a pre-symptomatic phase and knowing how to, to detect disease early and to track. So I think while that problem is not solved, we have made great progress. We have got markers of specific pathology, imaging, CSF and blood, uh, whether it markers of amyloid or of, of downstream's effect of, of amyloid, be it phosphorylated tau or neurodegeneration, neurofilament light, lots of things where we've made great progress. The, the area that, that, so we know we can identify people, we can identify a window of opportunity where we can intervene early. The real challenge is, is, is those effective therapies. And I do think that the door is starting to open with therapies that are showing we can change pathology. I'm quite excited by the opportunity uh, as of course you know Selena from work we do together about in our families that whether we can interfere with the the upstream with the gene itself its gene or its product that really feels like we really would be addressing the known cause in these families and I think some of these other approaches I, I do think that 
the ability to really remove amyloid, certainly if it was applied early enough, I think that has been dismissed by many and it's been too early to be dismissed. I think there is potential there. But the challenge is finding a therapy. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's, I think there's a remarkable statistic, which I think I might have heard from you, Nick, about even if we could just delay the onset by five years, the impact that that would have on people's life, on the economy, would just be remarkable. So, no, the, the, the statistics are, 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 are amazing about when you start looking into this. They're also slightly um, shocking. So, Dementia co costs the UK economy something like 26 billion a year. Of the amount that dementia costs the economy, much less than 1% is spent on trying to stop it or solve it. So less than 1% of the cost of this devastating problem is spent on research, on trying to find a cure. You know, it's, you know, what other problem it would be like, you know, the COVID pandemic, plucking something out of the air, right, okay, we've got, we're going to spend all this money on isolating people. We're going to spend all the money on, you know, more PP, you know, protective equipment. But, but shouldn't you find the vaccine too? Do you think, I mean, we've at the beginning you said that it's easy for people to sort of conflate Alzheimer's disease with all other dementias. Are the things we're learning about Alzheimer's and through the research going to Alzheimer's, do you think those will carry across to other dementias or will we have to sort of start from scratch on, on those? I guess what I'm saying is, are we sort of also getting free basic science into the bargain? Oh, we're definitely getting free basic science. We're definitely getting free basic science and there will be some things that will carry across. But I think... Disease modification need us to understand and intervene in a very specific pathological process. There are a number of things that will, will absolutely cut across diseases. They will be techniques. They will be an un conceptual advances. They'll be an understanding of, for example, that there is a pre-symptomatic period. What we've seen in Alzheimer's disease absolutely uh, occurs in, in, in many of the other neurodegenerative diseases. The... Um, approaches, whether it's a gene silencing approach, that will have what will cut across and and of course we need, one of the challenges of course is getting therapies into the brain and that will be common to all of these brain disorders Fascinating stuff, I wonder if we might switch focus a little bit Nick so the other part of this podcast is as well as hearing about the science we like to talk a little bit about the person um so how did you end up working at UCL on Alzheimer's disease was this was this part of your destiny from childhood were you from a family of no, medics and no. you thought right this is where I've got no, to go no. with my life no 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 far far from it I you know I I'm in awe of those people who age seven know that they want to be a brain scientist or an engineer or whatever they want to be. I, I had no such uh, commitment or, or, <laughs> or, or destiny ahead of me at all. No, no, uh, um, much more uh, opportunistic and never knowing really what I wanted to do. So uh, I had quite a 
different sort of approach. Didn't come from a medical family. Um, I grew up in in Jamaica, and at school, like, particularly seeing kids in in the UK going to school, uh, was pretty relaxed. So um, <laughs> you know, long holidays, short days. Um, not much homework. It sounds ideal. Sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it certainly suited me. But uh, partly as a result of that, I, I, I don't, I don't think I, 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 I was, I found maths and science easier. Writing essays sounded like a seemed a lot of work. So that's how I ended up doing that. And then when it came to to thinking about what I would do at university. I, again, partly in, informed by, um, I, I, I guess, the, the, the times that I was growing up in, but also my background, is I thought I would go to university and I would do natural sciences or engineering and I would save the third world by alternative energy. So this was my, with the wonderful naivety of, a, of an 18-year-old, that, that we all have that great confidence and um, born of... of of, of uh, well, confidence out of out of innocence and naivety, perhaps. But anyway, that's what I I thought I would do, and I did a science degree. And you came back to the UK for your degree. Or? I came back to my to the UK for 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 my my degree. I did natural sciences, and actually, I I got quite interested in some of the other natural sciences as well. And physiology was very interesting to me, so I did major, my main focus was physics, partly from that original aim and just because what I was good at um, but I, I thought physiology was really interesting and again for, for those people who are feeling that, that they don't really know where they want to go and how you know I, I, I have a lot of empathy for them because I did my degree and I got offered a, a PhD in essentially alternative energy and I thought three years Gosh, I'll, three years of research. I'd be old by then. <laughs> and I wasn't really sure I could commit to that. So I wanted to, to do something before doing that. And I also had a slight inkling by then that actually some of the physics research that I'd been seeing in my undergraduate years made me feel like that, that was a, a fair way away from people. Um, and so um, I, I went off and did various other things in the meantime, but uh, then thought actually a combination of, of, of physics uh, and science and, and, um, and liking talking to people, um, maybe medicine was the right thing. So I went back and did, did medicine. But the irony of it all is, of course, that I've ended up doing years of research um, that, my, that my former self would have thought, really? <laughs> So when you say you went and did other things, Nick, I have to probe that a little bit because we've had two previous guests now, I think, that had um, slight detours in the music industry and thought they might become kind of world famous musicians. Is that was that your detour as well? No. No. <laughs> anybody's anybody's heard me sing would know that that would be an incredibly uh, unwise decision. <laughs> um, no, absolutely not. I, I really wasn't sure what I w wanted to do. Uh, and actually, I spent, I saw an advert for and applied for an, um, a job in the Foreign Office. Um, so I spent some time, again, thinking that maybe my experience of having uh, lived, lived in, in somewhere like Jamaica and, and having a, an, 
and, and empathy for those sort of issues um, would would be relevant. So I, I I worked in the Foreign Office for a while before doing medicine, but. But there have been various other detours on the way, partly to fund myself through medicine, but also because other things uh, interested me as I went along. Would it be fair to say, to what, what extent do you think you pick things up along the way? Are there, are there things from your physics degree and the time in the Foreign Office that you, you can relate to in your sort of day-to-day life as a sort of research scientist? Or is that just a, a block of time that's behind you? Um, I, I, think, I think the sort of the physics was helpful... Not particularly because of, um, you know, that it gave me a, a, a phenomenal, you know, understanding or anything, but it it it, it meant that I um, both had some credibility on grant applications, rightly or wrongly, when I first started because I was doing uh, MRI, magnetic resonance imaging of the brain. So, it, it, you know... Whether it's true or not, it it, it gave the, the appearance that I might be able to understand what was going on. Uh, and perhaps it also gave me a bit of confidence that this wasn't a completely impossible world to try to understand. I think that that's helped. And um, I, it would be far, far from my place to say whether or not um, what the Foreign Office does uh, had any relevance to a complex bureaucratic hierarchy like universities. (laughs) And so what made you ultimately end up at UCL then? It seems to, you know, it it now is a hub for dementia research. It's, it's, you know, one of the priorities, I guess, of the university. Has it always been like that? Or is it something that you've kind of seen grow in your time here? And, you know, did did you come here because you saw an opportunity to develop that? Or was it because it was the best centre to be at? You, you give me, again, far too much credit, Selena, for any, any sense of direction <laughs> or purpose or commitment. Uh, it, again, it was opportunistic. So as a junior doctor, I, as you do, you work through different specialties. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And still harking back to my background, I slightly thought that if I did do some uh, a specialty, I might be thinking about doing something like public health. And then I did a, um, a job at the National Hospital for Neurology at Queen Square, which is now very linked to UCLH, or part of UCLH and, and, and linked to UCL. And I, I, I found neurology in the brain interesting, um, and particularly dimension, cognitive de- decline, something that um, seemed to me both important and, and interesting. And then a former boss who had worked for, for at, at the National Hospital said, oh, I'm the Alzheimer's Society, are, are, I've just announced clinical fellowships. I, I think, you know, using your physics background, we could put in something to do some brain imaging with MRI or something. And so I said, oh, well, sounds a good idea, but I'm not really sure what I want to do. I'm doing a busy ITU job at the moment. I, I really haven't got time to think about it. And he said, well, look, we'll just put it in and we can always pull it later. And the next thing I knew, I had a, had an interview, and then had to had the embarrassing um, position of in the interview it being clear that I didn't know anything at all, and they plumbed the true depths of my lack of knowledge. Um, and I do wonder whether the physics may have been the 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 thing that helped me get that first fellowship from the Alzheimer's Society. And then I then the rest 
as they say, it's history because I became interested in it and I got lucky with a few things during my research that just went well and um, and then it, that led on to other ideas and, 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 and one thing led to, to another. But UCL, in the time that I've been involved, has really, really um, strengthened its dementia it built on, on good, long-standing neuroscience. But I think the sort of dementia research, which initially, I mean, the ivory tower neurologists originally used to think that diseases like stroke and dementia were rather beneath them. And that was things that other doctors could deal with. Um, that's changed, thank goodness. I guess I would say that for, for people going into the field, um, to, to think about a disease or, 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 or area or research point where there is a real need. And I think that absolutely extends to the brain and, and dementia and neuroscience. And you know you don't want to you want don't want to don't want to work on a disease that's kind of being cured and going out of fashion. Um, uh, and that's certainly not the case for dementia. Uh, so I think there's a plea to people to actually this is a good place to work. This is somewhere where there are remarkable advances happening, but we're still at, at, at a steep part of the learning curve. And it's a problem that, sadly, is not going away. And it definitely commands the attention of governments and funding agencies who think this will bankrupt health and social care. Uh, and maybe we should be spending at least 1% of the cost. That, that is one of the asks that I and a few and, and, and some co-authors wrote for the, for the G7 summit, or G8 it was then, on when they did dementia, is if countries could commit just 1% of what it cost there, then we would really get a massive acceleration in research. Yeah, and we need as many, many hands make, many hands make light work, right? We need as many people. Yeah working on the problem to solve it. And we need to beg, borrow and steal things from other fields. Well, although, as a sort of outsider looking in from what you're saying here, this sounds sort of, it sounds fantastically optimistic. I mean, maybe you're just a very optimistic person, but it does, it does sound like, you know, we're on the, we've traversed the plane of understanding and now we're on the foothills of, I don't know, solving it. That's very poetic. It did, didn't it? It sounded... <laughs> yeah, no, it's very good. Um, uh, I think I'm pro I probably am pathologically optimistic. Most of the time. It does feel a bit like that, though. I mean, as someone, obviously I can speak to this because I'm in the same field, but in the time that I've gone from being kind of a PhD student to PI, there are genes that we didn't know existed. Progranulin was discovered when I was still a PhD student. Um, TDP43 inclusions, they were unknown when I was a PhD student. And you kind of see these huge leaps forward and it's knowledge that we take for granted now, but it's actually still really new. So I think, you know, I think it's it's good to kind of have that perspective when you've, you're kind of really deep in experiments and things not working and you're so focused to, to kind of have a second to take a step back and think, well, actually, even in the short time that I've been in this area, there have been huge leaps forward in knowledge. Um, so, yeah, it does, it does feel really exciting. And, and those, those leaps, are, are, I think, will make a real difference because they they're, not, they're not arcane, esoteric bits of, oh, well, this is how this bit of the brain works. They're fundamental to these disease processes. And yeah, of course, it's really important to understand how the brain works and, and all that, but 
But to make a difference, we need to understand these pathogenic processes as well. So Nick, we ask all of our guests at the end of the interview the same question. And that question is, what is your favourite fact about the brain? This can be as, as wacky or serious as you like. Oh my goodness, how do you, how do you, there are so many facts. Um, okay, as Selena will know, some of my research has been done on using techniques with MRI to measure brain volume changes. We have this thing that, that makes us the thinking human that we are, which is just over a litre in volume, 1.2 maybe, and every minute, almost a litre of blood gets pumped to that brain, almost its whole volume gets delivered just to support it. Isn't that phenomenal? Can you imagine, you know, if you just think about yourself as a human, you take in a, 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 a litre of, of, of liquid, or maybe you might take in um, two or three litres over, over a day, but the brain is being supplied by almost half its volume every minute of blood just to sustain it. That's an amazing fact. And another one. <laughs> Two for the price of one. I've been greedy here. <laughs> so Alzheimer's disease and, and these other degenerative dementias, you lose brain volume year on year and you lose it at a much faster rate than you do in normal aging. I'm afraid we are all losing brain volume. So that's another fact. 0.2, 0.3% in our 30s, 40s, and 50s, but, it, but it's five, six, seven times that in Alzheimer's disease at whatever age. But if people have, we did a small experiment looking at, at the effects of putting a real osmotic challenge on the brain. So people are going for dialysis, renal dialysis, can have a 3% volume change in the same day. So they can have a change in their brain volume that's equivalent to the amount you might lose in Alzheimer's disease in a whole year. Nick, that was a really fascinating discussion. I think I could talk to you all day, but we should wrap things up. Um, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Brain Stories, and we look forward to seeing you all next time. We'd like to thank Matt Wakelin, Maya Sapir, Trevor Smart for their roles in taking Brain Stories from an idea to a fully-fledged podcast, Susie McCarthy for editing and mixing. Follow us on Twitter at UCL Brain Stories for updates and information about forthcoming episodes. 